You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 288 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, by the end of the last episode, the federal gunboats on April 29, 1863, had failed to completely silence the Confederate batteries at Grand Gulf. So Grant decided to continue southward, looking for another spot where his army would be able to cross the Mississippi River. After arriving at Disharoon Plantation, Grant learned that a short distance downriver on the east bank was a small landing named Bruinsburg. Upon learning from a slave that, one, a road led inland from Bruinsburg to the town of Port Gibson, and two, that there were no Confederates anywhere even close to Bruinsburg, Grant decided that was where he'd cross the river. All that mattered now was getting the army across the Mississippi as quickly as possible. So Grant and 13th Corps Commander John McClernand worked through the night to ensure that everything was ready for a crossing first thing in the morning. Meanwhile, aboard his flagship Benton, the Union Naval Commander, David Dixon Porter, sat in his cabin writing a letter to Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells, telling Wells about the ferocious battle at Grand Gulf. Just before closing the letter, Porter wrote, We land the army in the morning on the other side and march on Vicksburg. In their book, Vicksburg is the Key, William Shea and Terence Winchell write, If only one of the many talented combat artists of the Civil War, such as Edwin Forbes or Alfred Wode, had been present on April 30th, 1863, they would have captured for posterity one of the most sublime moments in American military history as the Army of the Tennessee crossed the Mississippi River. With paddle wheels churning the muddy water and flags snapping in the breeze, gunboats and transports, some of them with barges lashed alongside, pulled away from Disharoon and cautiously approached Bruinsburg. The decks were covered with anxious soldiers, recalled an Indiana volunteer. Guns were cleared for action and the crews were at quarters. 
Grant and Porter shared the cramped pilot house aboard the Benton. Tension mounted as the vessels neared the east bank, and all eyes watched the tree-lined shore for any signs of the enemy. Grant and Porter actually had nothing to worry about because the Union soldiers and sailors found only a lone civilian at the tiny landing at Bruinsburg. That unfortunate fellow was detained aboard a gunboat to prevent him from informing the Confederates that the invasion of Mississippi had begun. And so the vanguard of the Army of the Tennessee went ashore unopposed. By the end of the day, 24,000 men and 60 guns had been ferried across without incident. The importance of what happened here really can't be exaggerated, since after months of failure and frustration, Grant was finally on the east side of the Mississippi River. In his memoirs, Grant would write, When this was effected, I felt a degree of relief scarcely ever equaled since. Vicksburg was not yet taken, it is true, nor were its defenders demoralized by any of our previous moves. I was now in the enemy's country, with a vast river and the stronghold of Vicksburg between me and my base of supplies. But I was on dry ground on the same side of the river with the enemy. All the campaigns, labors, hardships, and exposures from the month of December previous to this time had been made and endured were for the accomplishment of this one objective. Although the job was far from finished, of course, and many obstacles still lay ahead, everyone in the Army of the Tennessee, from the commanding general to the lowliest private, seemed to share the same sense of relief that this was the beginning of the end of the struggle for Vicksburg. As they marched away from Bruinsburg and moved inland, the Federals did so with a firmness of purpose and a swing in their step. McClernand's 13th Corps led the way, as it had since leaving Young's Point four weeks earlier. James McPherson's 17th Corps followed. The long blue column headed toward the bluffs looming in the distance, two miles east of Bruinsburg. One soldier in an Illinois regiment noted that the road ran past, quote, quiet farmhouses and cultivated fields through pretty wooded groves and up quiet lanes, all bearing the marks of peace and resting in supposed security from the inroads of invading armies. The Yankees may have started out with a swing in their step, but a pitiless sun and choking clouds of dust soon made the march a difficult one. The Federal soldiers were carrying 60 rounds of ammunition and more rations than they could stuff into their haversacks and pockets. Lieutenant Samuel Jones of the 22nd Iowa shared how the men carried their extra ration of meat, quote, the bayonets were placed on the guns and run through with meat, so each man had his extra ration of meat fixed on his bayonet. Then, at right shoulder shift, we proceeded on our march. Soldiers the same, and, as Lieutenant Jones observed, the whole army could be seen for miles, worming its way over that vast, flat country, with the bayonets gleaming in the sunshine and the ration of meat in its place. It was picturesque and beautiful to behold. 
When the Federals reached the top of the bluffs, a panoramic view of the Mississippi River Valley opened before their eyes. A short distance from the road, rising above fields of corn, was Windsor, one of the largest and most ornate mansions in the South. For many of Grant's soldiers, the mansion, with its towering Corinthian columns, must have epitomized the wealth and luxury they associated with Southern aristocracy. McClernand established his headquarters in the Grand House, while less exalted Federals rested in the shade of the majestic oaks lining the drive. While his troops assembled atop the bluffs, McClernand made the decision to push on through the night toward Port Gibson to try to secure the bridges across Bayou Pierre. By now, word of the Yankees' presence was spreading like wildfire across the Mississippi countryside, and McClernand was concerned that rebels from Grand Gulf would block the Bruinsburg Road, which was the most direct route to Port Gibson. So he chose a more southerly and roundabout route that he hoped would allow him to reach his objective without a fight. The march inland resumed late in the afternoon. The Federals tramped three miles south from Windsor to Bethel Church, then turned east onto the Rodney Road. Darkness settled over the fields and scattered woodlots, and the pace of the march slowed. Sergeant Charles Hobbs of the 99th Illinois recorded his experience that night, saying, quote, As we pass along, an old darky gives us his blessings, but fears there will be few of us ever to return. The moon is shining above us, and the road is romantic in the extreme. The artillery wagons rattle forward, and the heavy tramp of many men gives a dull but impressive sound. In many places the road seems to end abruptly, but when we come to the place, we find it turning at right angles, passing through narrow valleys, sometimes through hills, and presenting the best opportunity to the rebels for defense if they had but known our purpose. Grant had feared that he might have to fight his way ashore, so he took only infantry and artillery across the river on that first day. Cavalry and supply wagons were temporarily left behind on the Louisiana shore, as were hundreds of horses belonging to field officers. Grant and a few other high-ranking officers rode on mounts seized from a few unlucky local farmers, but at this early stage of the operation, most federal officers trudged inland on foot alongside their men. Because no Union cavalry was available for scouting purposes, a platoon from the 21st Iowa jogged ahead on the Rodney Road to act as an advance guard for the column. The Iowans were instructed to, quote, go forward until fired upon by the enemy, end quote. Well, those were surely orders that made them cringe, but at any rate, shortly after midnight on the morning of May 1st, the Iowans crossed Willows Creek and cautiously approached the A.K. Schaefer House, 13 miles by road from Bruinsburg. As the Yankees came up, they could see that the house was ablaze with light and the yard full of people. 
Back at Grand Gulf, the Confederate commander there, Brigadier General John Bowen, had watched helplessly as the Federal fleet passed his batteries and slipped downriver on the evening of April 29th. With that unsettling development, another officer might have been content to simply shrug his shoulders and sit inside his fortifications and await the reinforcements Pemberton had promised to send. But Bowen realized a critical juncture had arrived in the struggle for Vicksburg, and he wasn't the kind of officer to sit back and do nothing at such a moment. Instead, Bowen acted quickly to counter the Federal threat to his downriver flank. He dispatched two brigades, about 2,500 men, to block the roads leading inland from Bruinsburg and Rodney to Port Gibson. Hurrying south from Grand Gulf on the morning of April 30th, the Confederates found the picturesque town of Port Gibson abuzz with rumors that the Yankees were coming ashore in force at Bruinsburg. Continuing on, the Confederates reached good positions for defense about three miles west of Port Gibson, along both the Bruinsburg and Rodney Roads. Brigadier General Edward Tracy placed his Alabama Brigade, recent arrivals from Vicksburg, across the Bruinsburg Road, just as McClernand had feared would happen. Then, a short distance to the south, near Magnolia Church, Brigadier General Martin Green deployed his brigade of Mississippians and Arkansans astride the Rodney Road, which meant they were the ones directly in McClernand's path. Green also sent pickets forward to the Schaefer House near Willows Creek. In your mind's eye, if you like, picture a map where the two roads, the Bruinsburg Road and Rodney Road, are some distance apart and separated by the densely wooded valley of Centers Creek, which meant neither Tracy nor Green would be able to easily support the other. In any case, after the two brigadiers had deployed their regiments, Bowen made an appearance, approved what his subordinates had done, and then returned to Grand Gulf. The rebel soldiers bedded down for the night, in full expectation the Federals would make an appearance along with the rising sun on the morning of May 1st. The ground occupied by the Confederates was ideal for defense. A maze of flat-topped ridges and steep-sided ravines run in all directions. Although most of the high ground was cultivated and dotted with buildings, the deep ravines were choked with a jungle-like, almost impenetrable maze of cane, vines, and trees. In the fight to come, the rugged terrain and tangled vegetation would work to the advantage of the rebels and prevent the Federals from taking full advantage of their overwhelming superiority in manpower and firepower. Shortly after midnight on May 1st, Martin Green decided to check on his pickets at the Schaefer house. He was amused to find the women of the home frantically loading a wagon with their most valuable household items. The soul of chivalry, Green assured the frightened damsels that the Yankees were miles away and wouldn't make an appearance before daylight. Scarcely were the words out of his mouth when the stillness of the night was shattered by an exchange of gunfire between Green's pickets and McClernand's advance guard of Iowans. At that, the terrified women wasted not a second, leaping into their wagon 
and whipping the animals up the road toward Port Gibson. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Green ordered his pickets to contest the enemy advance. Then he rode hard back to Magnolia Church to alert his brigade. Then, straining to catch a glimpse of the approaching Federals in the moonlight, the Confederates waited as the sound of skirmishing drew ever closer. Lieutenant John Bell of the 12th Arkansas Sharpshooters Battalion later remembered how, quote, We could hear the enemy forming, and it was so still we could hear every command given to them. Our men had orders not to fire until word was given. Soon we could see their line of skirmishers coming down the road and could hear them say there was no one here, it was only a cavalry scout. When they were within 50 yards, the word fire was given. Volley after volley of musketry ripped the night and the fight was on. The sound of gunfire galvanized the troops at the head of the federal column. Infantry regiments hurried past the now-abandoned Schaefer House and deployed for battle on either side of the Rodney Road. Artillery batteries rumbled up and roared into action. Despite the darkness and smoke, a spirited exchange of fire continued until around 3 o'clock in the morning when the shooting tapered off. Then, for the remainder of the night, an uneasy calm prevailed as the soldiers of both sides waited for daylight to illuminate the scene before resuming the deadly struggle. As soon as it was light enough to see, the Federals began to move in force toward Magnolia Church. McClernand massed the three divisions of Brigadier Generals Alfred Hovey, Eugene Carr, and Andrew Smith in front of Green's Brigade of Confederates. Then, on his left, McClernand sent Brigadier General Peter Osterhaus's division to confront Tracy's brigade of rebels over on the Bruinsburg Road. Conveniently for the Federals, the Bruinsburg and Rodney Roads are connected by a lane running north from the Schaefer House, 
which permitted the Yankees to easily shift forces back and forth between the roads as needed, which was a luxury the Confederates didn't have. At any rate, if you pull up that map in your mind's eye again, you can picture that the ensuing battle of Port Gibson thus consisted of two simultaneous but separate clashes, the main fight on the Rodney Road and a smaller but no less intense struggle to the north on the Bruinsburg Road. The three federal divisions to the south began a slow and deliberate advance on either side of the Rodney Road. They reached Magnolia Church without too much difficulty and then engaged in a fierce firefight at close range with Green's rebels. As the combat escalated, the once peaceful hilltop around the church became a deadly killing field. Bowen arrived from Grand Gulf at the hottest stage of the fight and informed Green that reinforcements were on the way. But severely outnumbered and hard-pressed in front and on both flanks, Green's men weren't able to hang on. The Confederates gave way around ten o'clock and fell back about a mile and a half. Roughly halfway between Magnolia Church and Port Gibson, Green's Confederates were greeted by the welcome sight of a column of troops approaching from the east. Arriving on the field not a moment too soon were Brigadier General William Baldwin's brigade of Mississippi and Alabama soldiers, which had marched all the way from north of Vicksburg. There was also Colonel Francis Cockrell's Missouri Brigade from Grand Gulf. At any rate, having lost Magnolia Church, Bowen now hurried the new arrivals forward on the Rodney Road and formed a second and stronger line on a ridge behind a branch of Center's Creek. With the Confederate defensive line on the left thus restored, Bowen sent Green, whose brigade was sadly depleted after five hours of combat, to support Tracy on the rebel right over on the Bruinsburg Road. With Baldwin's and Cockrell's arrival, as well as other reinforcements that arrived during the course of the day, the number of rebel troops who would be engaged in the Battle of Port Gibson roughly tripled to between seven and 8,000 men. Ulysses S. Grant reached the Schaefer House just after McClernand's successful assault at Magnolia Church. The two generals rode forward on the Rodney Road to inspect the field and survey the spoils of war, which included two 12-pounder howitzers, three caissons, three ammunition wagons complete with teams, and more than 200 prisoners and the colors of the 15th Arkansas. Amid cheers of victory from the troops, McClernand and Governor Richard Yates of Illinois, who accompanied his constituents during the opening stage of the campaign, took the opportunity to do some campaigning of a different nature as they exhorted the troops with impromptu, rousing speeches. Well, Grant permitted McClernand and Yates to demonstrate their oratorical skills for a time, then suggested the advance be resumed. At that, McClernand exchanged his stump for a saddle and returned to the task at hand. Early in the afternoon, the Federal juggernaut resumed rolling forward, grinding eastward on the Rodney Road toward Port Gibson. 
McClernand remained in tactical command of the fighting, which meant that Grant had little to do except pester his lieutenant with suggestions. About this time, the leading elements of McPherson's 17th Corps reached the Schaefer House. This gave Grant an opportunity to make himself useful by briefing McPherson on the day's events thus far and by deciding where to send the new arrivals. When McClernand's three divisions resumed their drive eastward along the Rodney Road, they encountered Baldwin's and Cockrell's brigades of Confederates. But by this time, Bowen had no illusions about his ability to stop the Yankees with the troops he had on hand. The approaching Federal formations extended well beyond his flanks, yet he was determined to fight for every inch of ground, in the faint hope that additional reinforcements from Vicksburg would arrive in time to keep the enemy out of Port Gibson. As the fighting flared all across his front, Bowen detached Cockrell's brigade and sent it around the extreme right of the Union line. This daring move caught the Federals off guard, since the last thing McClernand expected was a Confederate counterattack. Surging out of a maze of ravines south of the Rodney Road, the Missourians caught the Yankees by surprise. The 56th Ohio gave way, as did the next regiment in line. Rolling up the Federal right flank as they pushed onward, the rebels next crashed into the 29th Wisconsin, whose colonel reported that his men were, quote, hotly pressed with great slaughter. With the element of surprise and in the confusion of battle, Cockrell's rebels enjoyed initial success, but the reality was the Confederates were too few in number to maintain the momentum of their assault. Eventually, the Federals recovered and brought the enemy counterattack to a standstill. Captain George Covell of the Confederates, 3rd Missouri, said, Their artillery opened on us with great rapidity, and as soon as we got within range, the infantry poured the mini-balls into our ranks as thick and fast as hailstones from a thundercloud or raindrops in an April shower. With the counterattack halted, Cockrell ordered a withdrawal. While the surprise flank attack had briefly stalled the Federal advance, it wasn't long before the enemy pressure began to build once again along the Confederate lines. It was now about six o'clock in the evening, and Bowen, realizing the futility of the situation, ordered his troops on both roads to retire under cover of darkness to the north side of Bayou Pierre. While McClernand's principal thrust along the Rodney Road succeeded in forcing the Confederates back toward Port Gibson, his secondary effort along the Bruinsburg Road made little progress for most of the day. During the morning hours, Osterhaus's lone division of Federals had a difficult time dealing with Edward Tracy's brigade of Alabamans. Whenever the Yankees attempted to cross a particularly steep-sided ravine cut by Center's Creek, the advancing blue-clad regiments became entangled in the dense vegetation and either lost momentum, drifted apart, or both, and most of the Federal assaults ground to a halt well short of the Confederate positions. 
with his advance checked as much by nature as by rebel resistance, Osterhaus resorted to sending waves of skirmishers forward with instructions to fight Indian style, shooting from behind trees and other cover, with the aim of wearing down the enemy infantry and silencing the artillery. Picking their way within easy range of the Confederates, the Federals found an inviting target in the Bodetort artillery, the only Virginia unit to participate in the Vicksburg campaign. Exposed on the forward slope of a ridge, rebel cannoneers and battery horses went down at an alarming rate. Then Union artillery found the range and began to shatter gun carriages and limbers with a hail of shot and shell. Sergeant Francis Obentain repeatedly sought permission from Tracy to move the battery's caissons to a more secure location. During his third encounter with the general, Obenchain recalled that, quote, A ball struck him on the back of the neck, passing through. He fell with great force on his face, and in falling cried, Oh, Lord, he was dead when I stooped to him. Edward Tracy was the first of several Confederate generals to die in the defense of Vicksburg. Colonel Isham Garrett of the 20th Alabama assumed command of the brigade, and even though Tracy was killed early in the action, the rebel line managed to hold throughout the morning hours against steadily mounting enemy pressure. Early in the afternoon, Green's weary rebel soldiers arrived from the Rodney Road fight to bolster the Confederate defensive line here on the Bruinsburg Road. But two worn-out rebel brigades couldn't stop the relentless Federal advance. Osterhaus's Yankees, supported by a division from McPherson's Corps, finally gained the high ground on the north side of Centers Creek. The Federals swept across the Bruinsburg Road and pressed back the Confederate right flank. In desperation, Green sent the 6th Missouri forward in a hopeless counterattack to relieve the pressure on Garrett's men. Just a side note, but the 6th Missouri was commanded by Colonel Eugene Irwin, a grandson of Henry Clay. The 6th Missouri was driven back with heavy losses. When Green received Bowen's order to withdraw that evening, he fell back across Bayou Pierre in the direction of Grand Gulf, and with that, the chaotic battle of Port Gibson was over. Twelve-year-old Fred Grant, Ulysses and Julia's eldest son, accompanied his father throughout the Vicksburg campaign. Despite strict orders to stay well to the rear, Fred reached the field of battle in time to witness the last of the fighting. It was an experience that he remembered for a lifetime. He said, I joined a detachment which was collecting the dead for burial, but, sickening at the sights, I made my way with another detachment, which was gathering the wounded, to a log house which had been appropriated for a hospital. Here the scenes were so terrible that I became faint and ill, and making my way to a tree, sat down, the most woe-begone twelve-year-old lad in America.
The day-long battle of Port Gibson cost the Federals 131 killed, 719 wounded, and 25 missing for a total of 875 casualties out of roughly 18,000 troops engaged. Most of the casualties came from McClernand's Corps. The Confederates suffered 60 killed, 340 wounded, and 387 missing, for a total of 787 casualties out of somewhat less than 8,000 men engaged. The rebels fought desperately and made good use of some of the most difficult terrain found on any Civil War battlefield, but in the end they were simply overwhelmed by superior numbers. Bowen summed up the situation in a terse wire to Pemberton. Quote, we have been engaged in a furious battle ever since daylight. Loss is very heavy. The men acted nobly, but the odds are overpowering. In the end, Bowen did the best he could with what he had, but Grant concentrated more men at the critical spot than Pemberton, and that was the difference. In their book, Vicksburg is the Key, Shea and Winchell write, Port Gibson was both a tactical and strategic victory. It not only secured the Union lodgment on the east side of the Mississippi River, but also forced the evacuation of Grand Gulf. Pemberton directed Bowen to abandon the town before the garrison was cut off and captured. Early on the morning of May 3rd, the rebels spiked the few remaining operational guns, blew up the magazines, and marched out of the battered fortifications. Then they crossed to the north side of the Big Black River and joined the main body of Pemberton's army. The Confederates' work of destruction at Grand Gulf attracted the attention of David Dixon Porter's flotilla a few miles down the river at Bruinsburg. The ponderous Federal gunboats slowly worked their way upstream against the current. When Porter reached Grand Gulf and realized that it had been abandoned by the enemy, he led a landing party ashore and raised the stars and stripes over the battered fortifications. With Grand Gulf secured, Grant's preferred crossing point was finally in federal hands, and it would serve as a base of operations for the next phase of the campaign. Meanwhile, on the Confederate side, John Pemberton decided that the time had come to move his headquarters from the state capital, Jackson, to Vicksburg. He finally saw with terrible clarity the potential consequences of Grant's presence in force on the east side of the Mississippi River below Vicksburg. Grant's bold move boded ill not only for Vicksburg, but also for the other Confederate strong point downriver, Port Hudson. Upon establishing his new headquarters at Vicksburg, Pemberton informed Richmond of the day's catastrophic events and said, Large reinforcements should be sent me from other departments. Enemies' movements threaten Jackson, and if successful, cuts off Vicksburg and Port Hudson from the east. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Vicksburg Campaign, March 29th to May 18th, 1863, 
edited by Stephen E. Woodworth and Charles D. Greer. This book is comprised of 11 essays that look at various aspects of and pivotal actions during the campaign's maneuver stage from March to May 1863, covering events from Grant's crossing of the Mississippi to the day the Siege of Vicksburg began. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information about joining the Strawfoot Brigade, including a link that will take you over to the show's Patreon page. Patreon is where you'll find all of the membership material, including over 90 members' episodes. Just last weekend, we finished up Van Dorn's Holly Springs raid, and soon we'll be looking at another cavalry raid there on the members' episodes, this time a Union one. Grierson's Raid. But before we do, we're going to do a show on Grant and the Jews, since that also ties into the Vicksburg campaign, and is a fascinating story that we think the members of the Strawfoot Brigade will enjoy learning about. We do want to give a shout out to the newest members who have signed on to support the podcast. So thanks to Michael, Desmond, David, and Jefferson, and Henry, Russell, and David. And then we've also had several donations recently from Paul, Alex, and Calcware LLC. So thank you one and all for your support of the podcast. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the Vicksburg story arc. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.